Okay, good morning, one and all. My name is Adrian. If you don't know who I am, I'll be kind of taking us through uh, this next part of our gathering. And uh, today, really, we're, it marks our first Sunday in our lead up in and through Easter, uh, where we're going to be looking through the story of Easter, through uh, seeing that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, through a lens of restoration, there are so many different ways that we can approach the cross uh, of Jesus, but we're going to do it through this lens of restoration. And with that in mind, I want us to think through this broken vase that we have here, which is uh, part of this ancient art form uh, that's Japanese called kinutsu, or kinzuki. <laughs> whichever way you want to say it, um, kinzuki. And so in it, and what this is, is it takes broken ceramics and then seeks to restore them. And the legend is told that there was a, a Japanese shogun uh, who had this amazing china cup and broke it and then really wanted it restored and so sent it back to China but they couldn't do anything with it. So then gave it to his craftsmen uh, in his empire. And what they did is they, they got the cup and they glued it back together using melted gold. And what happened was it became then this item of immense beauty and of immense value. And in it, what I want us to see, what we're going to see uh, through this amazing story of Easter is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is in order that we would be restored. That each and every one of us knows what it is to live with that brokenness of both what we've done but also what's been done to us. And that what Jesus does is he doesn't look to replace us, but rather looks to restore us. Restore us like the ceramics. There's something that then reminds us of the value that we've always had. As those of humanity who bear God's image, but also become something of true beauty. That we find that God somehow in his infinite wisdom is able to restore us both in the things that have been done and the things that we've 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 sought to do that become then scars of our life, not to be hidden away, but actually become moments of beauty, of God's grace at work in us. And so today what we're gonna do is look at then, well, what is this way of restoration? Uh, and to do that, I want us to zoom in on a passage of scripture in Mark chapter 10, where we're gonna find this amazing story of Jesus revealing the way of restoration. The way of everything that's gonna happen through that Easter weekend of Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, of what we're gonna just see through this passage is of him explaining it all, but his disciples still trying to grapple and think, what on earth is going on here? And so with that in mind, let's read then Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid, again he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Huh. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Jesus kind of bookends this moment of saying, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and I know where we're going there, and lays out this weird language which we're going to unpack and says, hey, the Son of Man is going to be taken and and treated awfully, and then will be executed, but he will rise again. again. And then kind of gets to the end, and all this discussion of like, okay, if whatever's happening is happening, Jesus, but like, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to get to be those of influence? And Jesus kind of gets to the end and says, hey, you've got to understand, what's about to happen is for the benefit of everyone. So what kind of restoration is he talking about? The restoration of what? I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where someone says something or writes something and what you see or hear is one thing, but what they meant was another. I remember the first year Lucy and I were married, we uh, were kind of deciding to kind of do this mammoth Christmas celebration. And so we lived in a town with both sets of uh, parents. Uh, So we somehow madly thought, I know we could seek to do Christmas with both of them. Uh, So we ate two Christmas dinners on that day. We also thought, hey, we want to start to do something. Just if you're getting married or you're about to get, don't ever do it. It is bad news. Don't ever try and eat two Christmas dinners on the the same day. All that happens is you start to feel very sick uh, by the end of the second. But we also wanted to do something of inviting everyone we knew who didn't have a home to go back to, to our flat on Christmas Day evening in order that they could get to know something of family. And so we did that, and we did a load of preparations of getting food in, uh, getting some stuff that we could do together. And on Christmas Eve, we suddenly realized that we didn't have everything we needed for Christmas Day evening. And so Lucy wrote me this list and sent me off on my merry way to kind of execute everything I'd been asked. And I'm very diligent with lists. And so I got my list, chocolates after eights, can't go wrong straight in the basket, napkins, grab those, straight in the basket, crackers, man, I knew people would come around, so at this point I think, no economy, let's go for Jacobs. (laughs) Obviously other crackers are available, but at that point, (laughs) Jacobs was like, that was it. So there I go, Jacobs cream crackers, just one sort, didn't want to splash out too much, Jacobs cream crackers in the basket to the till, get them all through, I come back home to our flat, throw open the door and announce to Lucy, I have returned, and boy, have I aced the list. Three items asked for, three items delivered. She goes through and sees the chocolates after eight. You could have got something a bit nicer, but they'll do. Napkins, they're looking great. Crackers, what on earth are these? (laughs) What what are you talking about? Jacob's cream, this is the, the, the best of the best. 
I meant Christmas crackers, a type that you pull. I said, well, I'm sure we can do something with this. It wasn't that good, it has to be said. But there's moments on there where you think you've heard something, and you've got it clear in your mind. Like, I'd like to say that that was the only instant this ever happened. It's a weekly occurrence in my life where what I think is going on isn't necessarily what was meant. And if you like, in this moment, that's what was going on with the disciples. Like, they heard Jesus talking about this language of the Son of Man, which talked about the one who's going to be the king who came and kind of reigned forever. And they'd been thinking it through and saying, oh yeah, there's this moment going to Jerusalem, that's the capital, and the kingdom's coming back. And what they heard in what Jesus was saying was, hey, Jesus is going to do it. Jesus is going to restore the kingdom. We're going to be the superpower again. See, they were living in a day and age where Jerusalem was just a a people group, uh, a city that was besieged by the Roman Empire, that the Jews were a people group that were owned by the uh, empire. And in it, the disciples are therefore thinking, no, this is a moment where Jesus is going to be like a king, like the king of old, like David or Solomon, and he's going to come and raise up an army that's going to crush the enemy. And at that point, we're like with him, And if we're with him and he's the king of all kings for a kingdom that's going to destroy everyone else, man, we want in. And we want to be those in top positions. And so you find these two disciples and come and say, hey, can we sit your right and left? Can we be the, the kind of chief left and right guys who get to be part of this amazing kingdom? The other disciples hear about it and it isn't that they're like disgusted thinking, hey, you've got this all wrong. No, they're like, how come they get the seats? Like, I didn't know that was up for grabs at the moment. Like, if we're talking about seats, hey, we all want in. We want the seats, the seats of real influence. And Jesus says, no, this isn't what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a kingdom of the now, like an earthly kingdom where you have a king that then becomes a superpower and dominates everyone else. No, what I'm coming to do is establish a kingdom that is way bigger than what you're expecting. Something that's going to actually deal with the whole of the problem of humanity and the brokenness that's there. And so in verse 45, you find that Jesus just simply says this, what is it all about? Well, it's about the giving of a life as a ransom for many. But Jesus says, no, what I've come to do is to give my life in order that the whole of humanity could be liberated. Liberated from what? Well, liberated from everything we saw through the last series we've been in of Home Origins, where we looked at Genesis 3, where you see everything breaks, where humanity decide that they could know better than God and think that God is maybe withholding something from them. And they decide, hey, maybe we could live outside of God's best because we know better. And then what happens is that everything breaks. As we discover, there becomes this brokenness in terms of how we relate to God and one another and the whole of creation, a a restlessness within ourselves of however much we do, it never feels quite good enough. And then this judgment of death, and something that all of us live with is that thing of, man, one day, we're going to die, and then what? And what we saw is that story of Genesis 3 has become all of our stories as we seek to live outside of what God designs for us. And it leaves us in this place 
of needing liberation, liberation from something we can't do anything about, where we continuously seek to live after things that are outside of God's best that cause us to live with a brokenness in terms of relationship, a, a deep sense of restlessness and of that sentence of death. And Jesus says, no, I've come that through my death, I can liberate. See, it's not just to liberate from something, it's to liberate into something. That Jesus comes to liberate us in to relationship. A restored whole relationship with God, with one another, with the whole of creation. A liberation in respect to rest, where we can know that we're eternally loved and accepted. A liberation in terms of life, and life eternal rather than death. Is that's what I've come to do. It's not about superpowers. It's about the liberation for the whole of humanity in order they would be returned to what they're truly meant to be. Those that image God and therefore reveal and honor him. So what is then the way of this restoration? Well, Jesus kind of says, well, the way of this restoration I'm going to paint in three different word pictures, and you can read the story, and if you like, they just become weird things. And so Jesus says, can you drink my cup? Can you get baptized in my baptism? Oh, yeah, and it's all about the Son of Man. And we can th- hear those, not about you, I read them, and I think, yeah, I don't know what you're going on about there, Jesus. Let's just carry on. I understand the end bit. You're going to die. But Jesus seems to use these images in order to reveal something about how he's going to restore us to who we're truly meant to be. So he says that it's about a cup. So what's the cup? What's the cup that he says that only he can drink? Well, for that, if you like, there's these moments, and at the moment I listen a lot to Tim Mackey, who's part of the Part of the Bible Project, which I'd recommend highly and listen to their podcasts. Uh, but Tim Mackey often talks about the fact that you find within Scripture these hyperlinks. So you know like when you go to Wikipedia and there's insane information, but sometimes the information is, is right. And you'll find that suddenly there's a blue kind of highlighted word. And when you click on that word, suddenly it takes you to another page to tell you a bit more about that thing. And if you like, in the New Testament, throughout the Bible actually, you find these words that are kind of like hyperlinks to other things that have gone on. As when Jesus talks about a cup, he's not just talking about any old cup. He's talking about a cup that's spoken of in Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, it says this, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Man, it suddenly got heavy. Like, what kind of cup? Oh, it's a cup of God's wrath. This is the cup that Jesus has come to drink. Like, what is that then? Well, Fleming Rutledge, I think, helpfully allows us to understand something of what we're talking about when we're talking about a cup of God's wrath, where she writes this, it is the unconditional love of God manifested against anything that would frustrate or destroy the designs of God's or his love. Who are the designs of God's love? Us. Humanity. And therefore, God's wrath is against anything that frustrates us being able to live in the freedom of his love for us. Therefore, what's that stuff? What's the stuff that's done to us or the stuff that we do that takes us outside 
of God's best. And God is against that. Why? Because he wants the best for us. And so Jesus comes and says, hey, I've come to drink that cup. And not just drink it, he is going to drain it. So first image, a cup. Second image, baptism. At this point, we can think, well, I, I can remember baptism. We do that, don't we? Like, people go under the water and they come back up. No, no, baptism in its fundamental word is actually explaining what we do see in terms of someone going under the water and coming back up. But it's actually talking about being overwhelmed, overcome by water. It's like this, like a wave that is crashing over something and completely smothering it. So Jesus says, oh, what's the way of this restoration? Oh, it's a cup that I'm going to drain. It's a baptism. A baptism of what? Well, an overwhelming of water. Again, hyperlink moment. Hyperlink moment of those moments where water overtakes, overcomes people. So we see it in Genesis 7, where God's judgment through the evil of humanity is that a flood will come. Probably one of the hardest stories to read. A flood comes as judgment and destroys all living things, apart from those that are delivered through the water in an ark. You then find another story, a story with another water that overcomes, where the people of God have been living in slavery in Egypt, and God says, I'm going to rescue you. And so Moses, the leader, kind of leads the people free from Egypt and gets to the Red Sea. And as he approaches the Red Sea, the Egyptians are hot on their foot. Having said they could go, he said, no way, we want them back. And it says as they get there, Moses then prays to God. And the waters part in order they can be delivered. And as they walk through, again, a hard story, we see them delivered. And then the Egyptians who are pursuing them to take them back to slavery, the waters encompass, encompass them, judgment. And yet they're freed. We could do some other stories, we haven't got time today, but you see in these two moments, you see, yeah, we've got the cup that is the wrath. We've got the baptism, which speaks of a water, a water that is of judgment, a water that is of death, but also that points to deliverance. So we've got the cup, the baptism. Then we get this weird one of a throne. Now, at this point, you're going, it doesn't say throne there, Adrian. No, it doesn't. It says son of man. Son of man is this enormous hyperlink. A hyperlink, to be honest, that we could spend the next 10 hours examining, but we haven't got that. We're just going to do one. You see, that son of man reference, which Jesus refers to himself as continuously in the New Testament, is that it's linking back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this dream, and in it he sees all the different kingdoms and powers of the earth, and as he sees them coming into play and dominating, suddenly there's one who comes and subdues all other powers. He says it was one like the Son of Man, who comes and sits on the throne given to him by God, the Ancient of Days, and he reigns in his kingdom forever. Jesus is saying, man, this restoration is going to come through the one who is the son of man, who has a throne that will reign over everything forever. So Jesus says the way of this restoration, oh, it's a cup. A cup speaking of judgment and wrath. A baptism speaking of death, judgment, but also deliverance. And a throne 
speaking of a kingdom that will last forever. But then he says, those three things, those three symbols, those three aspects of what we're looking at, well, they get revealed in a restoration plan. The revealed restoration is the cross. The cross of Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Jesus speaks to his friends, his disciples in this moment, but to us in this moment here. That his restoration plan is fulfilled in his cross. You see, it's at the cross where Jesus died, we discover that he drinks of the cup. The cup is drunk and is completely taken to the very finest drop. And so we find in Mark 14, 36, that in this moment as Jesus is there in Gethsemane, before he approaches the cross, he says, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, not my will, but what you will. See, this cup imagery was going to be there, and you see it through Mark's gospel. But in that moment before he gets the cross, we'll get to the cross in a moment, I got ahead of myself. That in this moment, in the garden, just before Jesus is about to be crucified, he sees the cup. He understands what he's going to be seeing. The cup that he spoke about, that will bring about a restoration. He now sees in the fullness of everything that it contains. He says, Father, is there another way? But knows there isn't. He says, Father, not my will, but yours. Because this is the God Trinitarian plan. Father, Son, and Spirit working in partnership, saying this is how it's got to be. And then we get to the cross in Mark 15, 34. And at, the th- and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabakathni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that moment, what happened is that Jesus drank fully of that cup. And something that is beyond our comprehension is a mystery to us that in that moment, to Jesus on the cross, who has eternally existed and was eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit, there was silence. As he took on everything that was there to be taken, there was silence. And he cries out from Psalm 22, Father, why have you forsaken me? It's a mystery. It's because he drank the cup. But it's also that he had a baptism known. So in Mark 15, 37, it says this, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He died. Remember the image of water? Water always leads to death. The judgment of death. He died. Then verse 38, though, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The water baptism, curtain torn in two. Why? Because he's died and therefore there is always deliverance. The deliverance we saw of the ark on the flood, the deliverance we saw of the people of God through the sea. In this moment, it's a deliverance of a curtain that separated the whole of humanity to the very presence of God in one temple, suddenly split in half to say that everyone now is welcome to access God directly, not through any other human being, but directly to who God is. Because Jesus has come and made a way so that every single one of us can know access is granted. I, it is good. Because it stops meaning that someone who stands at the front isn't special. 
We all are. We can approach God, who is holy and just and righteous, wherever we are. Man, even in the toilet. That's the most offensive place I can think of, where you think, no, no, surely not, no. Yes, God can be present there. Because it's been split, the curtain, because of what Jesus did. So it's a cup, it's a baptism. But it's also that last part of a throne revealed. See, the cross was his throne. Mark 15, 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Do you remember? Jesus said to them, it's not for me to tell and say who can sit at my right and who can sit at my left because those positions have already been given. And suddenly we find that the positions that are given are to a rebel on his right and a rebel on his left because his cross was his throne. Because the point was that the object that seemed to be attached to shame and curse was the object that became the proclamation of his glory and majesty to the whole of the earth. This is Jesus. This is his story of restoration. This is better than some gold melted down to glue ceramic together. This is Jesus who is God coming and drinking the cup that we could not drink, of being baptized in a baptism that you and I could never have, and becoming one who took on a throne that you and I could never have taken. In order that what? In order that we could know a restoration received. A restoration received that promises for you and promises for me that Jesus is enough. I don't know like what your life is made up of at the moment. But the promise is this. Jesus is enough for you. And Jesus is enough for me. And then it then means that he redeems what he took on. So he was baptized in order that we could know a baptism. Suddenly it changes like what we're looking at when someone says, oh yeah, I want to get baptized. I'm going to go and get stuck in water and then come out and somehow that kind of reveals like something. And people look on and go, well, that was kind of nuts. What's going on there? No, no, this becomes a moment of us remembering, oh, because you did that baptism, because on the cross you were overtaken by death, but you brought a, brought a deliverance through it, I now get to go and go under the water, remembering that water symbolizes judgment and death, and I get to die to my old way of life in you, Jesus, and be resurrected as I come out of it into this new life of what you've done. That's what baptism is. If you've not been baptized, my question is, why not? It's not a show. It's a proclamation of resting in the multitude and wonder of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And maybe you're here today going, but I want this. I want Jesus. Great. Because you can have him. He's yours. So if you've not been baptized, I'd say, man, Maybe today's the moment we say, I want to do this. Why? Because it reminds me of what you've done, Jesus. I just simply rest in your work on the cross and what this pictures. But it's not just that he offers us his baptism. 
because he took on a baptism we should have had. It's also that the cup he drank means that he can offer us a different cup. And this changes everything. See, suddenly we get these moments where we can gather around a table of this simple meal of bread and and juice and take a cup because we realize as we take it, we're remembering that he drank the cup of God's wrath in order that we could know liberation. Therefore, we come and we celebrate around the meal. We celebrate in communion. Why? Because it proclaims what we know to be true. Christ crucified. Christ resurrected. We are liberated. We are being restored. I'm just going to pray first. Jesus, I thank you so much for the wonder and richness of your life, death, and resurrection. I thank you whenever we pause to look on your crucifixion, we just see more and more depth of the love of who you are revealed to who we are. And Jesus, we want to drink deeply of all that you've done for us in order that it would continue to transform our lives. And our prayer, God, is that as you transform our lives, I pray would you cause us to then bear witness to that transformation to others in order that we'd cause many others to come to see and taste that you are good. Amen.